continuing in our series we started just last week called Remarkable. And my, my hope is that last week, I challenged you, if you're new today, is last year at this time, we went through Acts chapters 1 through 10 in our series called Reset. And now we're picking back up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 11, and we're going to go through Acts 11 through 20 in our series called Remarkable. And we're going to see some of the remarkable acts of God through His people and for His name and for His glory. And that's what we're going to get to see here today. Now, some of you, uh, I encourage you that you would read on your own Acts chapters 1 through 10 to kind of get caught up, refresh yourself. And then for each week, we're going to be going through a chapter at a time, verse by verse. And it's an opportunity for you to already know what it is that we're going to be looking at. So uh, I told you last week, read Acts chapter 12 so that when you come, there's some familiarity and context. Next week, Acts chapter 13. So it's the new year. What should I read? What's my reading plan? Read Acts chapter 13. Study it. See what it has to say so that you're prepared. Um, now, some of you will recall, last fall, we were going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and there was one of those sermons where I shared with you a story about one of our early church fathers by the name of Polycarp. Some of you are like, oh, I remember that name, Polycarp. What happened to Polycarp? Well, Polycarp lived a long time ago. He was born about 70 AD, but we know or about that time, but we know specifically when he died because in Fox's Book of Martyrs, there is a story of of his life for the Lord, but also his death, his martyr for the Lord. And I shared with you back then uh, that that story is that Polycarp, he's about 86 years old. He's the bishop of Smyrna, not just north of us. He's the bishop of Smyrna, around modern-day Turkey. That's where he was the bishop at. He actually learned under the teaching and tutelage of the Apostle John. But here he is in Smyrna, and because of his force of ministry, uh, the Roman Empire has had enough of him. This is when the persecution of the Christians is beginning to ramp up. And so they begin to pursue after him, and he continues to evade them. And finally, there comes a point where the Roman Empire is coming after him, these different soldiers and leaders in this area of Smyrna, and he runs no more, and he waits for the soldiers to come in. And as they do, he treats them with such kindness. Remember, love your enemies from the Sermon on the Mount? He loved his enemies. He treated them with kindness. And he even said, if you would give me just about an hour, he made them some food and he said, let me go upstairs and pray. And he prayed. And even the soldiers were so moved that this old man, who they have come to capture and lead to his death at the stadium, at the arena, is upstairs praying even for his captors. Well, they take him out. They lead him to one of the officials there on top of a hill where he overlooks the area of Smyrna and the stadium there, the arena and this this captor of his, one of these uppity-up guys, one of these one of these guys, he goes, Polycarp, he said, will you recant Jesus and save yourself? And Polycarp says he can't. And so he kicks Polycarp out of that chariot. He injures his leg, and they haul him off to the stadium to be killed. And as he's there, he's in front of an even bigger uppity-up, and he's asked the question specifically. He says, Consider yourself and have pity on your own great age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists. See, they thought Christians were, were atheists. But Polycarp responded with this. I love this. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Well, the proconsul wasn't done with him. He's like, Polycarp, I, apparently he didn't want him to die. He's trying to get him to deny uh, the... Christ. And he says, swear by the fortune of Caesar. He says, you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character. Hear me frankly declaring what I am. I am a Christian. 
He says, but I'll bring the wild beasts. Uh, that doesn't sway him. He says, well, if not the beasts, he says, I'll bring out the fire. And Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. And the story goes that as he is there in front of the pro-council and he's ushered into the stadium about to be burned at the stake, is that a voice is heard by many within the stadium. They just don't know where the voice is coming from. And the voice simply says this, Polycarp, play the man. As Polycarp is tied to a stake and they light the flames on fire, story goes is that as if the cool breeze came in at that moment so the flames could not get his body. And finally the crowd, bloodthirsty, wants Polycarp dead in this order that he is run through with a sword. Polycarp lived 80 and 6 years. But he said, he's never wronged me. He's my king. We're about to see some pretty remarkable stuff in Acts chapter 12. I love the book of Acts. When I was younger, I honestly, I didn't really enjoy the book of Acts. It was kind of one of those, I was like, that's ah, interesting. Let's go to the letters of Paul or John or James or let's read something from the Old Testament, some of those stories of Daniel and Lion's Den. But the book of Acts is truly remarkable in what God accomplishes through ordinary people to have his kingdom and his name become extraordinary throughout the Roman Empire to where it even carried on to today. And my hope and prayer is that what we see, even in the life of a polycarp, is he chooses to remain steadfast. He remains steadfast, unwavering, loyal, to, just to the end. Nothing is going to deter him. And as simple as I can possibly make it, that's what I'm wanting us to latch on to today. That in your life, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, and believed in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, He is your Lord and your Savior, then choose to remain steadfast to Him with your everything. With your abilities and resources and time, everything that is yours is His because He has offered so much for you. He's laid it all out. And we're going to see just an incredible, remarkable story here in uh, the book of Acts. But before we dive in, let, let's, let's pray together. Father, I'm asking that as we take the time to read from your word, that there are so many other things that we could be doing right now, and there's so much in our lives that have happened over the last week, or as we're thinking about this week, where our minds could be distracted. I pray that our attention would be directly focused on you. And so where you sit, would you pray for yourself, God, help me to focus and listen right now to what you have to say. And if you would, would you pray for me that uh, I will articulate the Word of God clearly so that we get it, understand it, and live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope you're in Acts chapter 12 because that's where we're launching. We're going to take a look at this chapter here this morning. And it says in verse 1, it says, now about that time. We're going to stop there because what does that mean, about that time? That means read Acts chapter 11. Go back and watch the sermon. See what it has to say so you get context to kind of cheat you just a little bit. Uh, now about that time is at the very end of Acts 11, there's a great famine that has occurred throughout the known world. And so about that time, it says that Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church 
in order to mistreat them. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know that there is a King Herod, and he seems to just live forever because there are a lot of Herods throughout Scripture. This is not the same Herod that we just read about in the Christmas story. Those are two different Herods. Herod was honestly such a common name for the kings uh, of Jerusalem at this time that it was kind of synonymous with the same idea of like a Caesar. I mean, they just kind of continued that name and continued it just carrying on through. So not the same Herod as when Jesus was born, and not even the same Herod when we get to the end of the book of Acts next year that Paul stands before. Uh, This is Agrippa I, that's Agrippa II. And so it can kind of get confusing, but in the end, just know that the Herods, they were um, an interesting bunch, and they were kind kind of scary and kind of insane. And this guy in particular, this King Herod, actually had an affinity for Judaism. He was actually kind of interested in what it is that they were practicing. And so in some ways, it seems that because he had that affinity for Judaism, he's wanting to appease those religious leaders there in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, to be able to say this way that is going on, these Christians that are kind of deceiving people and and leading them away from Judaism, well, I'm going to mistreat them. And not only does it allow me to kind of live out my Judaism faith, but it also kind of gives me some bonus points politically because you guys like that. You like the fact that I'm trying to stamp out this movement that is called Christianity. And so he mistreats them. And look at what he does specifically to two individuals. Verse 2, it says, And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when, uh, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread when he had seized him, Peter, and put him into prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before uh, the people. So King Herod here is mistreating people. He specifically takes James. Now this James is, you remember Jesus, how he had kind of those 70 that he invested in, those 70 people that we read about in the Gospels? And then he had the 12 disciples that he invested in. But then there was that kind of inner court three of Peter, James, and John. This James is the brother of John. This James is the brother of John, who they were called the sons of thunder because they wanted to bring about God's discipline on some people who were not doing things the way that they wanted them to. Passionate follower of Jesus. And we see that he's not only mistreated, Herod puts him to death because he loves Jesus and he's faithful. Jesus. People liked it. So now he goes after Peter. And he arrests Peter. And notice that it says that he basically had uh, four squads of soldiers. Your, your translation may say it a little bit differently, but essentially 16 soldiers were assigned to Peter. And it's not that there were 16 soldiers around him all the time. It's kind of understood that there were probably four squads of four different soldiers to where four at a time would be guarding him. Two were chained up to him. And then two were probably standing guard at a door to make sure that nothing would happen. And you might say, this is Peter and this is one guy. Why so much fuss and so many guards over one person? Well, again, if you read Acts chapters 1 through 10 last week, you'll be reminded that in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John were arrested. And God, in a miraculous moment, delivers them out of prison. Maybe King Herod has heard about this story. and He's like, not on my watch. I'm going to make sure that he stays arrested and that there's no possibility. We're going to even link up chains with Peter to these two Roman guards. And so he's constantly being watched over. He's constantly being uh, 
being being basically a, a, a captive at this much, at this point. But you look at verse five. It says, "So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer." If you don't mind underlining, underlining this. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. What you're going to see is, I've told you at the beginning, that we would remain steadfast, resolute, unwavering, faithful, loyal. We see the church right here remaining steadfast and unwavering in their prayer. They're fervently praying to God on the behalf of Peter. Well, he goes on here and it says in verse 6, On that very night, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and the light shone in the cell, and he, he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. I, I think it's interesting, don't you, that on the night before he's going to be brought before this kind of uh, trial. And, and it's understood in this by most commentators that when he was going to be brought, Peter, before the people for this trial, uh, that this was intended to be an execution. Not just a trial, but this was going to be another death of one of the apostles and one of the leaders within the church of Jerusalem. And so the church is praying fervently for him that God would intervene and deliver or do something. And here's Peter and apparently he's there for a time because Herod says, we're not going to do this until after the Passover. We had a big problem whenever we killed a guy during Passover named Jesus. And we're not going to repeat that. In fact, that was illegal, guys. I hope you guys know that. That was illegal. The proceedings of the trials of Jesus were illegal to be doing what they were doing, yet they did it. They thought they were doing it because we're taking care of a guy. They're doing it because God is sovereign. And he says, the lamb must be slain that it would echo the words of John the Baptist who says when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God is in control of this entire situation. He's sovereign. But in this moment, <laughs> what you find is that Peter is asleep. God chooses to intervene, and it feels like at the midnight hour, literally, like at the last minute. Now, that's not always how God operates, but in this instance, this is how he chose to operate. He receives these prayers. He moves in this moment. And here, Peter is going to be delivered in a very just divine, literally angelic way to where when the angel shows up, Peter is asleep. Now, there's a couple of ways of which I saw this. Peter falls asleep quite a bit in Scripture. Have you noticed that about Peter? If you read him, fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have a problem with falling asleep. But I wonder if he has such a calm about him to sleep before he would go to a trial that would probably lead to his execution because of he knows who he's, who's, is his and who is his. Like He knows that he is in Christ. He knows that, that because I've seen the resurrected Lord, that I have, I have victory regardless. It's not that necessarily he has a death sentence. That's not the case. No, I don't think any Christian should just live that reckless life. But I can tell you right now that I, I don't have fear of death. I have no fear of dying. The manner of dying, uh, there's some ways that I might not like to go, but I don't have a fear of death because I know in whom I believe and I have trusted in, and his name is Jesus, and if he came back from the dead and he has the power to, to do that, then I believe that he has the power to take care of my soul for eternity. And so the angel literally has to strike him on the side. Wake up, Peter. I love the fact that he wakes him up. 
And it says in verse 8, the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I, I would imagine, I would imagine so. A, a practical point for you when you pray. The people of God are praying for Peter that he would be delivered. He's delivered. The angel shows up. The angel's doing all the supernatural. These guards aren't waking up. Chains are falling off. We're gonna de- you're, you're delivered. But at the same time, I love the angel is like, put your pants on, put on your shoes, do some practical things. Uh, I'm not just going to spoon feed you here. Sometimes when we pray, we're like, God, if you would just deliver me from this experience or this moment, and we just sit. It's not that we're trying to be God in that moment, but there, there are some practical things that we do within the supernatural of that. You, just, you, you put on your shoes, you get up, you follow, you choose to put some action to what you see happening in front of you. It's kind of the classic story that I know many of you heard of a guy praying for deliverance. Uh, the flood waters are building up. He gets onto the roof of his house and he's like, God, would you deliver me? And, and the, the boat comes along. He's like, hey, get in the boat. He's like, no, 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 God's going to deliver me. And a helicopter comes along and he says, hey, jump on the ladder, climb up. And he says, no, 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 God's going to deliver me. He drowns, he dies, he sees God. He says, why didn't you deliver me? I sent you a boat, I sent you a helicopter. It's on you, buddy. And so at times when we pray, we just want to step back and say, God, you just take care of everything. But there, yeah, he's sovereign, he's in control. But there are some practical steps that we can do. Uh, just kind of the classic expression of putting some feet uh, to your prayers, putting some faith in action. Well, it goes on in verse 10. It says, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Again, the supernatural work is going on here. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. And then when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. We see again here in verse 12, the church, even on the night before the trial and the execution, is still choosing to pray together. They're, they're, they're not relenting in this. Even though it seems to appear, perhaps the answer is going to be no. And so I want to stop here for just a second. When you look at verse 5 and verse 12, you see that they're praying, praying, praying. But as I read this story, I had a question, and maybe you had a similar question. Maybe, maybe you didn't, but, but this is the question that I had. The question is, we got James and we got Peter. One is arrested and experiences angelic divine deliverance. And the other one is killed with a sword. Did Peter love God more than James? Did did James just not have enough faith? Did James not as passionately follow Jesus? I believe both of these men, apostles, leaders within the church, both of these individuals are godly, committed followers of Jesus, passionate. So why? Why does it seem that at at times good, godly men and women suffer? You're following Jesus. You have a loved one who's following Jesus. Why should he or she suffer? Or, 
good godly men following Jesus, passionately love the Lord, choosing to walk that narrow path which is hard. And they die. Maybe they're martyred or maybe they die because of some sickness or whatever it may be. But, but why? It seems untimely. Now, did the church fail to pray for James? Is that why he wasn't delivered? I, I don't think that's the case. I think they prayed for James just as much as they prayed for, for Peter. So we might ask the question, well, why didn't they answer? Why didn't God answer their prayer? And I believe perhaps the reality is God did answer their prayer. And the answer was you're praying for his deliverance, but the answer is, is no. He will suffer and he will die. And it's at those moments that I make these comments. Maybe not you, but this is me. Have you ever made the comment, I know you're sovereign, but. I know you're in control, but. God, I know you're able, but. It's in those moments that I have to remind myself of the prophet Isaiah when the Lord God says, my ways are not your ways. And I don't like to read that sometimes let alone be reminded of it. Or I have to not only be reminded of that, but I also have to rest in your God, your sovereign, I'm not. And that's incredibly difficult to do. Because at times I wonder, maybe you do as well, I wonder at, at God's timing. And I wonder at God's ways. Do you ever wonder, like, God, what are you doing? And why are you doing it this way at this time? But there seems to be this mystery and this wonder of God's sovereignty and our praying interlacing with one another. Like somehow his sovereignty and our prayers commingle in some way. And that's a mystery to me that, that some people are like, Pastor, you know, why was this prayer answered and that one wasn't when God is sovereign? And sh why should I pray or why should I continue to pray if he's in control and he already knows what he's going to do? Does it really make a difference? Does it matter? And I would say it does matter, but it's a mystery that my mind can't quite comprehend. In the same way, there are other mysteries within our faith that there's a tension, but there's a truth that is there. There is the truth of the Trinity. Wrap your mind around that. Good luck. But it's true. Our God is three in one and one in three. But he's, we don't worship a plurality of gods. He's one. We have the mystery of, a, of Jesus being fully God, fully man. Not kind of God and kind of man, 50-50. He's 100% God, 100% man. The incarnation, the resurrection, the idea of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man when it comes to salvation. There's this tension and this mystery of that, but, but I choose to, to, to believe. So however God works it all out, He, again, interlaces His sovereignty with our prayers to enact His good and perfect will. And it's hard, especially when His good and perfect will with our prayers doesn't line up with what we were praying for. That's incredibly difficult. I can speak from experience of God. I know you're able. Why don't you? God, I know you can. Why, why won't you? And some of you right now, you're like, that's exactly where I'm at, Pastor. God, would you deliver or would you provide or would you do this? And I'm faithful to you. And at times we're like, I'm faithful to you, so what are you going to give me? And, and that it's a hard thing to kind of come to terms with. And it's hard, but I choose to believe. I choose to believe this truth of the mystery of prayer and the sovereignty of God and trust it because I trust Him. 
even when I feel like I can't. Because, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I, I trust Him because I look at the character of God. And the way that I look at the character of God and I'm reminded of His character and His goodness is I look to the cross and I'm reminded that His character is good. He's good and gracious and loving and merciful. Look to the cross. Because I could echo the words of the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, and yet God looks upon the wretched man that I am and He says, here's my son for you. And so if a good God who's loving and gracious and merciful provides for me His Son to die the death that I deserved and to live the life that I can never live, then why would I not trust Him in His goodness and His character when it comes to every aspect of my life? And what I'm telling you today is this is not an easy truth. And I know there can be easily moments where we experience life's hardship and we go, why should I pray? What difference does it make? I choose to pray because... God is different. He is set apart. He is holy. And however He does it, He takes my prayers and He aligns them and interlaces them with His sovereignty and His good and perfect will. And I trust Him. The hard part is when He says no. If He said yes every time, then, then He would become the genie in a bottle. We choose to remain steadfast, just as the church did here. Now look at verse 13, Acts chapter 12. It says that when he, Peter, knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda, it's also the name Rose, came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. She's just so excited. I know that voice. I've heard that guy preach all the time. I was there on the day of Pentecost. I, I don't know if she was or not. That's extra biblical. Uh, but but there, there he is. That's him. We've been praying for this. And she runs to the house so filled with her excitement, she forgets to open the door for Peter. Have you ever been like that where you're just so moved and so excited? You're just like, I got to go share. And you forget to like, oh, there's, there's someone I got to you know, help her out or whatever. And so she just runs off so excited. And then we come to verse 15 and it says, the people, the church gathered here, in, in Mary's house, the mother of John, also called Mark, we're going to come back to him in a second. They said to her, you are out of your mind. Thanks, church. <laughs> I feel the love. Edify, stupid. Um, and so it says here, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. But they kept saying, it's his angel. So now... We're getting beyond the fact that you're saying it's Peter. Let's get into a theological discussion of, well, is it his guardian angel? How many angels do we have? And blah, 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 blah. And, and everything that kind of goes on that sometimes find discussions in the life of the church. But Peter's outside the gate, guys. Like, listen to Rhoda. Listen to Rose. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. He's like, angel delivered me. Better let me in. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Friend, just to kind of uh, uh, apply this, this isn't in my notes. Has the Lord led you out of your sin? Not because you grew up in church and not because you've heard the gospel, have you surrendered your life to Jesus that he would lead you out of your prison of sin? It's the only way. There's no other name under heaven by which men will call to be saved other than Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Not about Jesus. Have you surrendered to Jesus and all that He accomplished? 
and all that he is. Because he'll deliver you. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James. You might say, James just died. What Peter is just struggling. No, no, no. He's saying, report this to James. This isn't James who was just killed by King Herod with the sword. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem that we'll read in Acts 15. This is James, the guy who wrote the book of James towards the end of your Bible. It's this James. It says, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and he went to another place. Now, I want you to note a couple of things before we continue. Again, we're going to come back to this topic of prayer. Because I want you to choose to remain steadfast in all areas, but especially prayer. There's two things revealed about the prayer life of the church here in Mary's house. One is they prayed with consistency. Did you see that? In verse 6 and verse 12, they're praying. It's even the midnight hour. They're still praying. Just a people of prayer. Again, as I've said before, if we want to see God move and work, we need to pray. If you want to see those people on your list, that, that I've talked about living and working and playing with, and you want to be able to have a desire to, and a burden for them, pray for them. You will not have a burden for people if you don't pray for them. It will become a chore and just a task to accomplish. You need to cry out with your heart to the Creator for them, and your heart will just be kind of come disconnected with them. And so it says, uh, and so there's consistency in their prayer, but there is not expectancy in their prayer. You see that? They're consistently, faithfully, steadfastly praying. But whenever the prayer is answered and Rose or Rhoda comes to them and says, Peter's at the door, they're like, you're crazy. They weren't expecting Peter to be there. They didn't expect their prayer to be answered. So much so that even when they finally go to the door, because Peter continues to knock and they let him in, it says they saw him and they were amazed. Now, I think there might be the sense of maybe like, wow, there he is, God is good. But I get a sense that there's this lack of expectancy of like, I can't believe he's here. It's like, well, what have you been praying for? You've been praying for Peter's deliverance. There he is. Be in awe of God in his supernatural divine work, but recognize that makes sense. That's what we were praying for. Thank you, God. Now, why do I bring that up? It's we need to be consistent and expectant in our prayer life. So one, are you even praying? Be consistent, be expectant in your prayer life. But beware, because there is a teaching and there is a theology out there that, that has been rampant for a while from what's known as the faith movement. And this theology is this idea that the reason, and listen to me, because this is devastating the church. There's a theology and a teaching that the reason that you are not experiencing victory in your life the reason you are not experiencing miracles in your life or the supernatural in your life or answered prayer in your life is because of you and because of your lack of faith. That's why it's not answered. I've had people say to me about things in my life, well, maybe if you had just a little bit more faith. And I said, I want to punch you in the throat. I didn't, but it was in my heart and in my mind. I went backwards. <laughs> Some people will say, if you'll just claim it in the name of Jesus, it'll happen. I've seen people claim things in the name of Jesus and it never happens. If you would have just done this, then it would have happened. Now, is there scripture about prayer and, and faith? Yeah, we are to pray in faith. Absolutely. 
We're to pray consistently and expectantly. But when we see this church in Mary's house, did this group pray? Yes, but did they pray with much faith? No. But did God answer their prayer? Yeah, he did. There's several examples of what I'm referring to, but the one story I'll recall, I mean, you can look at Jesus and the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, but there's a story out of the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, of where Jesus is going to be healing a demon-possessed boy. Some of you may remember a father comes to Jesus, asks Jesus for help because his son has been demon-possessed, and this demon is just just tormenting this, this, this boy. And finally he comes to Jesus and he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I mean, what a prayer. If you could just take pity, help me. I mean, just such desperation. And Jesus replies, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And I love the reply of the boy's father. And it's an echoing prayer that I've had to adopt in my life. Because the boy's father cries out and he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, there's a lot that I believe in God. I believe that God can save my soul, but then there's other areas of my life I'm like, can you really do this? And why aren't you doing that? Help my unbelief. And Jesus in this moment, he heals this boy. He casts out this demon. And, and in this moment, this, this miracle and this healing takes place even with shaky faith. Some of you are like, man, if I was just more faithful, then God might be doing this in my life. We see time and time again, even with shaky faith, unwavering faith, God still moves and God still answers because His character is good. That still comes back to those of us who are like, well, my faith is real shaky and He still hasn't answered me. And times my faith has been real strong and He hasn't answered me. That's when we come back to that mystery of, I'm going to choose to pray, but the outcome is yours. That's hard. It's really hard. You see, the measure of your faith has everything to do with the object of your faith. Say it again. The measure of your faith has everything to do with the object of your faith. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's that classic passage. It's kind of the hall of fame or the hall of faith of these great men and women of God from the Old Testament who lived out faithfully and steadfastly to the Lord. They remained steadfast and they trusted the Lord regardless. They continued. And and for some of these individuals who remained faithful to the Lord regardless of what God was calling them to do, to step out in faith to do, it it lent them their faith. It lent them to be delivered. It, It allowed them to experience the supernatural. They had relief. But then there are others within the same hall of faith that their faithfulness and steadfastness to the Lord that was just as committed and just as passionate, it didn't lead them to deliverance and powerful experiences. It led them to suffering, hardship, pain, and death. And both are in the hall of faith. And both are victorious. People are like, where are your victories? You aren't praying in faith. My victory is in Jesus. Choose to remain steadfast to the object, the author, the perfecter of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not done, but I'm going to ask you to pray right now. Bow your head, close your eyes. We're not done. We're coming back. But I wanted to do an early just time of prayer. I'm asking that you would choose to pray right now for those individuals in your life that God is beginning to place upon your heart of who you live with, live around, who you work with, and who you play.
And if you don't know who that is right now, if God hasn't placed it up on your heart, ask God right now, God, help me to see those people that are around me, that I could be intentional engaging them with the gospel of Jesus, with love and action. Just take a few moments where you're at right now. Pray for those individuals. As you continue to pray, there may be some of you you're thinking, I don't know who that is. Ask God to help you just to think of those individuals. God, who is it? We're really using the month of January to identify those three individuals or more in your life that you're going to be intentional about this year. Amen and amen. Take a look this way. As we finish, look at verse 18. When day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So this really pleasant guy, Herod, is the kind of guy that we're like, it seems like he kind of gets to do whatever he wants. He has power. He has authority. He's able to kill this guy, arrest that guy, kill these guards for not doing their job appropriately. And we look at that and we go, where are his consequences? I feel like I'm dealing with consequences all the time. And I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord. Where are his consequences? Well, it's a fair question, but just let's read the next verse. Look at verse 20. Now he, Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This guy's pleasant. And with one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Remember, there's a great famine, Acts chapter 11. They're asking for food. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel and took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them, the people kept crying out, Oh, the voice of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he died. There's your consequence. I see this as God having patience upon patience upon patience of the hard-hearted Herod. But there comes a point where God is not everlasting suffering. He is long-suffering. There comes a moment where there are consequences and justice and judgment will be dispensed. And at this moment... That was it. It was time. It was time. And, and when it says that Herod died, there, there are some commentators who think that he died actually of worms. <laughs> that he actually had eaten some things and got worms in him, and that's how he died. Very painful, very uh, not good. Vengeance is the Lord's. But notice this. Chapter 12 began with Herod ruling and reigning and powerful. James is killed. Peter is arrested. But wait. I know there's times where we see those around us that they seem to have everything this world can offer. And maybe they do, but they forfeit their soul. And it's not that you can't have things and still know Jesus. But what we see is, is at times we can get so caught up in what they have or what they're experiencing or whatever it may be and not realizing that in the end, do we have victory? It's, it's in Jesus. The chapter begins this way with Herod, but it ends with Herod dead and Peter freed. 
And James, though he is dead, is present and alive with Jesus. He is victorious. Look at verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now remember from Acts 11, Barnabas and Saul, they're there in Antioch teaching for like a year. The famine comes up. They collect an offering to send it to the church of Jerusalem. Now they're on their way back to Antioch. But it talks about this guy, John, who was also called Mark. There's two different times that this guy has been, been mentioned. Some people call him John Mark. John Mark is a young man who is excited. It appears he grows up in a godly home. His mother, Mary, is housing the church here in her, her home. He grew up in this fashion. He has an interesting life. In a moment, we're going to see he'll be at the center of a very sad disruption of a wonderful duo But it also appears that at some point in his life, he comes alongside the Apostle Peter, who has just been freed and been knocking on his mom's house, uh, the door of his mom's house. He comes alongside Peter, and through his time spent with Peter, that's how he pins the Gospel of Mark. That's this Mark. He wasn't one of the Apostles, but his words have continued to make an incredible impact to the glory and the Gospel of God, the Gospel of Mark. Now I want to close with verse 24, and we'll be done. It says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Choose to remain steadfast, unwavering, resolute, loyal to the mission. Don't be deterred. We see here that the word of the Lord continues to grow and be multiplied. Despite mistreatments, despite arrests and death and madmen and power-hungry individuals and soldiers following orders and borders preventing you maybe from carrying the gospel, maybe seas preventing it, governments, personalities, cultures, ethnicities. It's, it's just this example of don't be deterred by any of that and don't be deterred by unanswered prayer. Continue to remain steadfast. There's going to be a slide on the screen. We have a handout that we're going to pass out to you, so you're going to have it personally so you can take it home with you. But can we put that slide up of the Engel scale? This is just something called the Engel scale. It's called Steps to Christ. And there's like 16 of these, but you'll notice that number 10 is highlighted here where it says a decision to surrender to Jesus. Now, this is just this idea of there's an individual maybe in your life that you live, work, and play with, and maybe they're at step number one. They have no awareness of God. They didn't grow up in church. They've only heard a little bit, or they have some awareness, or maybe they have some contact with a Christian. But all this is, is this idea of there are moments where God supernaturally in His grace works. And someone who's never heard the gospel in a hut somewhere on the other side of the world, and they hear of Jesus, and God moves as it's always supernatural, and they, they surrender their life to Jesus. But for a lot of us, what we have is we have individuals that we're visiting with, and I'm going to use the word touches, but we have these different touches with individuals or people that hopefully it's it's, it's building up to where they come to a moment where they hear the gospel again, and they choose to surrender their life to Jesus. In in seminary, there was an evangelism professor. He said that on average, it's like seven touches in someone's life, seven moments of hearing the gospel before they may pray to receive Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's not a defined number, but it's just kind of that average. And the reason why I share this with you is this. I've called upon you to remain steadfast. I've asked you to think about those you live, work, and play with and how you can intentionally engage them and, and, and love on them, have a burden for them. And some of you might say, I know exactly who I want to pray for. I live with this person. 
and I've lived with this person for a long time, and they are so hard to the things of God, there is no way. What I'm asking you to do is continue to remain steadfast because the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Don't be deterred. Realize that it might be a part of this step process. It might be that they need another touch in their life. They need another just word in their life. They need another example in their life that you continue to do so. At times we become deterred and we, we kind of step back and think this is just isn't, isn't possible. I don't know who your individuals are on your list. But man, remain unwavering in the intentionality of pursuing after them because you are the best person suited in that arena because you live there, you work there, and you play with them. As we close, remember Polycarp? That voice came out from that arena, that stadium, and it says, Polycarp, play the man. Well, that was a long time ago, like 150 AD, something like that. In the year 1555 of October, there were two individuals who were actually killed by Christians for their faith in Christ. It was a dark time. These two individuals by the name of Latimer and Ridley are being told to recant their faith and to kind of fall in line with the Church of England. And they continue to refrain to not do so. And listen to these words. Latimer speaking to his friend as they're tied to a stake to be burned for their faith in Jesus. Master Latimer spoke to Ridley in this way. He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace as I trust shall never be put out. I know some of you are women. But play the man. Follow the example of a Polycarp, of a Latimer and a Ridley, of a Peter and a James. That regardless of what you throw at me, just like those in the Hall of Faith, regardless, high or low, I will remain faithful because I am victorious in Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? First thing I'm asking you to do this morning choose to remain steadfast. If you're watching online with us, <clears throat> maybe you hear the stories of a Peter or a James or a Polycarp or a Ridley or a Latimer and you're like, how could they? I believe they can, even though it's hard to remain steadfast because of they know Jesus. They've surrendered their life to Jesus. It's not just a head nod so that they can get fire insurance. They love the God-man, Jesus, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if you're in this room or if you're watching online, and your heart and your desire is, ah, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of Jesus, but I'm still kind of just wrestling with what does it mean to live my life for Him? I, I don't want to make the assumption. If you're an individual that's in this room or online, and you're, you're just saying, I need to surrender my life to Jesus, regardless of what it costs me, I have to have Him because I have victory in Jesus. If that's you, I need Jesus. If you're watching online, email us. If you're in the room, look at me. Let me see you with the whites of your eyes that you're saying, I need Jesus to be Lord and Savior of my life.
In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that sometimes is hard to sing. It's a beautiful hymn. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. Many of you know it. And some of you right now, through clenched teeth and maybe even a tear streaming down your cheek, you might be saying, It is well with my soul, but it's hard. Some of you, last year did not go the way you wanted. This year, so far, rough. I just want to remind you that if you are in Christ, you are victorious. You have victory in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a few verses of It Is Well With My Soul. I invite you to do that as your expression of worship, as your declaration of, I choose to remain steadfast to the King of Kings, regardless of unanswered prayer, regardless of the hurt that I'm going through, regardless of what my loved ones are experiencing. I choose to remain unwavering and loyal to the King of Kings because He's worth living for, suffering for, and even dying for. Because He is good. I looked at the cross. It's empty. He's good. I looked at the tomb. It's empty. He's good. Well, Father, I pray that we would declare Your goodness and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you would, would you stand and would you sing? I also don't want to make the assumption, even if you didn't look at me, but you're like, I don't know what this is but I need to have a conversation with Jesus. I'll be right here and I'd love to visit with you and talk with you about what it means to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But for the rest of you, lift up your voice to Him and let this be a declaration that I will choose to be steadfast to Jesus. Let's pray. Or let's, let's pray.